Good to see everybody here tonight, and um, I hope that you are ready to get into uh, some, uh, some deep, dark things tonight in Revelation chapter 12. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that we think about anything like this. People always think about the divine. Uh, at least uh, Americans have a tendency to do that. Uh, think about the smoke out there and begin to think about the end times and so forth. And uh, the truth of the matter is, one of these days, it is going to be the tribulation. And it is going to be um, God's judging this earth. And so it kind of reminds us of that. But we're going to go to Revelation chapter 12 tonight. If you did not get a handout and you'd like to have one, please uh, raise your hand. We've got some, um, uh, some handouts for you. And uh, we'll continue on. We're on, on, on lesson 44. And uh, we are trying to um, make sense rather than just make progress trying to make some sense of these things and understand them. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to talk about some of the background here, but uh, hold your place there in Revelation. If you would, go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, and we'll do some background of Revelation chapter 12. Uh, While you're turning there, we had a good uh, meeting last night with uh, several of the college and career, and uh, enjoyed ourselves talking about the things of God, and it's great to hear some of the young folks talk about, uh, some of the younger folks talk about uh, the, how God is working in their lives and how, how the Word of God is speaking to them. That's an exciting thing. And uh, let me encourage you to continue to pray. The, what, what the Lord did during Bible conference is uh, just an example of what He desires to do on a regular basis. And so we continue moving forward, uh, praising the Lord for what He's done for us. All right, Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 15. We know this one. Uh, this is where God is speaking to Satan, he says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, thee being the serpent and the woman being Eve, and between thy seed and her seed, that is uh, the child, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So here, God is pointing out the direction of history, the direction of history, and he introduces three characters, a woman, a child, and a serpent. Now, if you held your place in Revelation chapter 12, then you can go back over there and see Revelation chapter 12. He says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman. So we have a woman, verse 2, she being with child, pain to be delivered. Verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, So we see uh, the woman is delivered of the child in verse 5. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was cast out. That old, what's he called? Serpent. So we have here the completion of history, Revelation chapter 12, the completion of history. And again, you have three key characters, a woman, a child, and a dragon, which is also identified as a serpent. So Genesis, the book of beginning, and Revelation shows how the Lord will conclude the cycle of history and move forward into the future. So that's what we're talking about in Revelation chapter 12. And what you find as you go into um, your studying your Bible, reading your Bible, is that the more that you read and the more you listen to the things that are taught, you will begin to pick up and see patterns. And that's all that learning is, is recognizing, oh, that's, I know what that is, and I know what that is. That's how you read. You learn to identify the shapes of letters. That's how you read music. You identify 
uh, where a, a note is on the staff. That's, that's all that it is. And, and some people, by the way, I grew up doing music and not, I'm not very good at it, but sight reading. People say, I can't sight read. I can't look at it and, and, and you know, go f- right off the bat, just shoot from the hip and, and sing it. And all that sight reading is, is the same as reading words. It's recognizing the shapes, and in the case of music, it's the distance between them. And you understand how far up you should go and how low and so forth. So the scripture is similar in that you have to begin to learn the patterns that are repeated. So I wanted to show you this one right off the the bat, because you have the very beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. God is using the same pattern, the woman, the child, and the serpent. And the more of those things in Scripture you can pick up, you will begin to see those. And you don't have to force them. They, you'll see some of the stuff tonight. It's amazing. It's just only God could have put this book together. Let's go over a little uh, court, crash course on anti-Semitism. Um, so Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, and Shem was the progenitor of the Jews. He was the father, so to speak, of the nation of Israel. And so anti-Semitism, Sem in anti-Semitism, referring to Shem, the son of Noah. And it means hatred for and mistreatment of the descendants of Shem, namely the Jews, Israel. So when someone says that's an anti-Semite, they're referring to the son of Noah, Shem. The first promise and prophecy in the Bible, as we just saw, Genesis 3.15, is that the serpent of the serpent, the child, and the woman, the serpent is Satan, the child is Christ, and the woman is Eve. Now, the promise was that this seed would bruise the head of the serpent. And Satan knows that, and so he has had a counterattack to anything that God has done. And we'll go very quickly through this. I won't, you won't have to turn to it necessarily, but you can go back and look at it. Uh, so for 4,000 years in the Old Testament, Satan has had a counterattack against the seed. You see it as soon as Genesis 4, where Cain slew Abel. Cain was of that wicked one, the Bible says. In Genesis chapter 6, you see the cohabitation of the sons of God. And uh, this idea that, that Satan was involved in cohabiting physically with the children of men, the daughters of men, sons of God, daughters of men. And just remember, Genesis 3.15, he said, it, what did he say there? He said, it, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed. Now, was that a, a metaphor, thy seed, when he's talking about, uh, uh, and her seed, is he talking about a physical, actual generation, someone that's born? Well, of course he is. Talking about the Messiah. Don't forget that Satan also has a seed. Now, how exactly that seed works throughout, down throughout history, I'm not sure, but I know Genesis chapter 6 says that there were sons of God, and they came in and they cohabited with the daughters of men. And what we find today is we are finding this idea that mankind is not alone in the universe. That's what people are, are comfortable with now. Did you hear about, uh, you're hearing it all the time. I heard about the 911 call uh, just a couple weeks ago out in Las Vegas. Anybody hear that one? The guy's screaming, yelling about the nine-foot beings with great big eyes. 
And, and even if that's not true, that he really didn't see that, this was reported on, on the news channel, the local news channel in Las Vegas. What does that mean? People are getting used to hearing about these things. The idea of we are being visited by other, it's not just the stuff of science fiction movies. It's becoming more and more mainstream. And then if you combine that with the AI, artificial intelligence, the idea that mankind is not the only intelligent being in the universe. I, you know, evolution is accepted by everyone, and yet now this idea that uh, there are possibly other beings and that mankind is not the, t- the, the top of the heap. Uh, artificial intelligence. Personally, uh, this is what I was talking with Brother Rogers and a bunch of other men about. I, th- I think that the possibility is someday we're going to have a robot that is AI, which obviously is already happening, that can be inhabited or controlled by one of the sons of God. And everybody's going to say, well, it's, just a, it's just a robot. Just, it's just AI. What's the big deal? It's just a computer. And at the same time, not realizing that it's being controlled by Satan himself. The Bible does say that, uh, that Satan gave power so that, to the image of the beast. If you remember, we'll see later in Revelation. So this concept of other beings coming and, inhabit, and cohabiting is, uh, is from the very beginning and goes all the way through. Now, if you go to, to Exodus chapter 1, you're going to see the death of the male babies. And that's where Pharaoh was trying to wipe out the Hebrew nation by killing every male child that was born to a Jewish woman. And only one survived. Only one survived, and that was Moses. And then you have Ezra 9, the intermarriage of the Jews with people who are cursed. Cursed peoples. Ezra 9, 2 says, For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. The idea of the holy seed. What's, what's the Lord trying, uh, what's the devil trying to do with, with God's promise, with his seed? He's trying to corrupt the seed. Why? Because it was only through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that salvation could be purchased, that there could be redemption of fallen man. And, and that was going to come through a line, a line of people that were preserved by God. The idea of this seed, the seed of the woman, being preserved all the way down through. So when you read your scripture, Jesus Christ was not just some guy that wandered in. No, he, was, he came from the people of Israel, and he came from a very specific tribe, and he was promised where he was going to be born. And all that, and as you begin to read that, you start putting these pieces together. You say, wow, this is, this is really true. And I will say this too, the concept of a holy seed, of God's seed being preserved. How long did it take for the Messiah to show up? It took a long time, somewhere around 4,000 years. And yet God preserved his people throughout, no matter what happened. And, uh, and, and, and the, the correlations between the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, And the Bible says we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. God preserved his holy word, the incorruptible seed, down through time, though Satan has attacked it. Again, another example, you cannot distinguish really much between Jesus Christ, the word of God, the incarnate word, and these words of God right here. The parallels just are infinite. Uh, Esther chapter 2 talks about the decree. Haman 
uh, makes a decree to wipe out all of the Jews. And he hates them. And so he tells the king that this decree needs to be passed because the Jews have a completely different set of laws. They're not following. He really cares about the rules, but he wants to, to, to wipe out the Jews. And so he says, these guys are not following the rules. You know, king, please, they're not doing it. And so the king says, well, we better pass a law here. And he passes the law. And uh, unfortunately, that's what what sent uh, Daniel into the lion's den. But really, it was it had nothing to do with the laws. It had nothing to do with Haman. Really, behind the scenes, it was Satan trying to destroy that seed. And and it, it brings us forward, really, in, in the timeline. It brings us forward all the way up to Revelation chapter 12. And all throughout history, the Old Testament, he is trying to destroy the seed. Now, we're up to Revelation 12. If you go to verse 4, <clears throat> you're going to see... Um, his counter, his counterattack at the birth of Christ. Notice it says, uh, let's look at verse number uh, four. It says in the last part, the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And you remember the repeat of history where Herod sent to have all the babies in Bethlehem destroyed just as Pharaoh had done before him. And the Lord miraculously preserved uh, Jesus Christ, and they fled down into Egypt, and they were preserved, and then he brought them out. So you watch here in the verse number four, it says he's waiting to devour her child. He's waiting to devour, and it goes right into verse five. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations. In verse five, he goes right from his birth to his ascension, because he wants to highlight the victory. It was not a struggle. Satan is not even mentioned. The, this, you see, he's trying to devour, and, and he is this, uh, in verse number three, he's this wonder, and he wants to devour. He's waiting for the child, and nothing happened. He tried to devour the seed, and he thought that on the cross he had done it, and yet Jesus, three days later, rose from the dead. So he's seated now at the right hand of the throne of God, in victory, the devil, here's the simple fact. The plain fact is he tried to devour the seed and he couldn't. He just couldn't. It, it's amazing that Satan keeps trying no matter what. He is not giving up. Now, since the birth of Christ, we have 2,000 years. Now, let's talk about the reason, the reason for the hatred first. For the first 4,000 years, this is before the birth of Christ, the dragon came against the woman because he knew that Israel would be the one through whom the seed would come. Would come. So he's attacking Israel because he knew that it was the seed of the woman, Israel, was going to be the one that produced the Messiah. Now, since then, after the birth of Christ, for the past 2,000 years, the dragon has continued to come against the woman. Why? Because she's the one through which the seed did come. So he's still upset about this. His hatred is not, a, he has a real hatred. It's not a fair weather hatred. He hated her before Messiah came, and he hates her since Messiah came. He's never changed his mind. Let's talk a little bit about history. You can go and study these things. Roman, the Roman general Titus, 70 AD, he leveled Jerusalem, and he crucified uh, some 500 Jews outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And by the way, that's what uh, the Catholic Church and many others 
say is the fulfillment of the book of Revelation, of what took place. And we don't have the time, but you could go through and see how the things that Revelation say, if you're going to use the destruction of Jerusalem as literal, then you can't make everything else metaphorical, allegorical. Everything else that is mentioned in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, hasn't happened yet. Yes, the destruction of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem has been sacked many times. And, uh, and it is an example of the fact that Satan wants to bring Jerusalem, he wants to bring the Jews down. He's still trying to destroy them. All right, look at Roman, uh, Roman Emperor Hadrian in 135. He had over 500,000 Jews killed. Uh, the king of England in 1020, his name was Canute, C-A-N-U-T-E, Canute. In 1020, he banished all Jews from the shores of England. A thousand years after the time of Christ. King Edward I, 1272, he confiscated all Jewish property. He exiled uh, some 16,500 Jews out of the country. Over in France in 1306, there were 100,000 Jews that were stripped of their property and possessions and exiled. 1306 in France. In Germany, 1345 to 1350, uh, there were Catholics that were burning Jews in Germany, and they were accusing them of eating their children as Passover lambs. They said that they were saying, uh, the Germans are saying that the Jews are, the German Catholics are saying the Jews are eating our children at Passover. And of course, that's so disgusting that thousands of Jews were killed in that time. This is well before the uh, Reformation. And then the Black Plague, you've heard of the Black Plague, right? Well, as it was sweeping through Europe in the, th- in the 1300s, it was killing thousands and thousands of people. A horrible plague. And the, the Jews were not dying in the same proportion, the same ratio as everyone else. And why? Because they were following the Levitical laws. They were washing their hands. They were, doing, uh, they were using the principles of hygiene that God had given to the nation of Israel. And this was well before anyone had discovered germs, before anyone had talked about how we need to wash our hands. And people thought, you know, there's no such thing as germs. You can't see them. There's nothing there, you know. And so they were dying, but the Jews weren't. And as a result of that, people began to say, oh, it's got to be the Jews that are doing this. The Jews are the ones that are killing us. That doesn't make any sense uh, necessarily. But they thought, well, they're the only ones that aren't dying. So they have some secret magic. And as a result of that, they're able to stay alive. and We're all dying. And so they turned on the Jews and began to kill them. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were put to death throughout France and through Germany. In 1492, the same year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue, uh, there were Dominican Catholics in the homeland of Columbus there in Spain, and they were driving out Jews out of their country. Their desire was to drive out every single Jew. 1492. Uh, Over in Austria in 1684, there were 800,000 Jews that were killed. During the Russian Revolution, 1916 to 1918, there were thousands of Jews who were killed in Russia. And then Adolf Hitler in Germany, he, of course, did all kinds of things against the Jews. He stripped them of their property. He hung them on barbed wire. He starved them in concentration camps. He burned them in ovens. And uh, the conservative estimates say that over 5 million Jews were killed in that time frame. 
If you go a little bit forward, roughly around the same time, 1943 to 45, in Ukraine, there were over 500,000 Jews were killed, and that was in connection with World War II as well. And that's just a skimming the surface. Hundreds and thousands and millions of Jews have been killed. Why? Why are they so hated? Uh, and that's a question that Golda Meir asked. She said, why is it that, that Israel, she was, one of the, she was the first female prime minister of, of uh, Israel, she said, why are we so hated? It's interesting that, that, that she, uh, the answer is found in the scripture. She didn't know, but she was just amazed at why this was so, so uh, focused and so much hatred for the Jews. Uh, I could take you through some of the, the history of why there is a state of Israel today. And I, I want to let, just so you know, it, it directly connects back to the Word of God. It directly connects back to people who believed the Bible and shared that belief with other people. And as a result of it, God has used that to form a state. And it's been uh, going ever since. The population is going up. We'll see that in a moment. Okay, now, that was background. Let's go back to our outline of Revelation 12. We did this last week, or a couple weeks ago. So we saw a great wonder in heaven. We saw the characters. The woman is Israel. The great red dragon is Satan. And the child is Christ. Now let's talk about the context. The context. Identifying the context. Uh, Notice, Revelation chapter 12, verse 4. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the ground, to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And there was war, I'm sorry, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there any place found any, neither was there place found any more in heaven. Now let me throw you something here to think about. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. Uh, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. This is a big uh, question. You understand this, and we won't get into it tonight. I'm going to give you a teaser for next week. Um, when did this happen? When did Satan draw all a third of the angels from heaven? Here's the teaser. It hasn't happened yet. Now, if you, if you can find a verse to tell me that Satan took a third of the angels with him when he fell, I want to hear it. The only verse, the only reference that says that is this right here, Revelation 12. And that is future. It hasn't happened yet. So where did all the, you know, the, angel, the fallen angels come from? We'll talk about that. Revelation, uh, Genesis 6 is a great starting point. A bunch of them that fell. They left their first estate, chained in darkness, right? We won't go into it too much, but just, uh, just suffice it to say, a lot, of time, a lot of times we hear stuff that kind of sticks with us for our entire lives. And anytime uh, we hear something that's different, I don't know, that didn't happen. But be careful what you teach as, as doctrine. You know who is really happy with all this stuff being in the past? Apostate religion. Um, the Roman Catholic Church is really happy to, to say that Book of Revelation is allegorical and anything that's actually literal happened way, way, way back there. Why? Because it's a direct indictment on mystery Babylon. It's a, it's a scary thing. So, so chew on that. And by the way, if that flies in the face of what you believe, good. Good. Why? It doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe. It matters what sayeth the Scriptures. 
And if you haven't gotten mad in a while and said, I want to go, then you probably haven't been studying your Bible. We have a great, we owe a great debt to heretical teachers. We really do. They get you fired up. They really do. Um, God said he was going to use the church to make Israel jealous. And uh, so far, it's not working. But gradually speaking, little by little, there's going to come a point when it does work. God uses sometimes uh, these things that are sidetracks to help remind us of what the truth is. And uh, contrast is one of the best ways. So maybe that'll whet your appetite a little bit. But notice, the Bible says that in eternity past, we know that in eternity past, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, we know that, that he had this attitude uh, of pride and, and he was released, he was rejected from his position of the anointed cherub. And so at that point, he fell from heaven. Um, he became a great red dragon. He has seven heads. He has seven uh, crowns on his head and ten horns. And, and he became the great deceiver, it tells us, which deceiveth the whole world there in verse number nine. So what happens, though, we have to be careful. I want you to see the similarities in chapter 12 of Revelation, verse 6, and in verse 14. We're going we're to go into uh, the period identified. The period identified. Notice, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Okay, look at verse 14. Look at between 6 and 14. The woman fled into the wilderness, 14. And to the woman... Uh, were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Verse 6, where she hath a place prepared of God. Verse 14, into her place. Uh, Verse 6, that they should feed her there. Verse 14, where she is nourished. And verse 6, 1,203 score days. Verse 14, for a time and times and half a time. 1,203 score days. Now, let's look at this, the period identified. Here's the equation. A biblical year has how many days? Anybody know? 360, not 365. 360. 360, all right? So, if you take, and by the way, uh, you, you, well, let's look at this, and I'll say that. 6, chapter 12, verse 6, 1,203 score days. You're talking about 360 days times three and a half years equals 1,260 days. Now, looking at verse 14, you have these units, a time, times, and half a time. A time, that's one, times, that's two, and half a time. What is that? One unit plus two units plus a half a unit equals three and a half units. Three and a half years. Why? It's the same as 360 days. Revelation 11, verse 2, tells us that it's 40 and 2 months. 42 months times 30 days equals 1,260 days. Now you say, I'm not good at math. All you have to do is go over this 100 times and it'll start to sink in. And, and really, it's, it's, the great thing about the Bible is it doesn't change. So it'll just be here next year when you run into it again. So just keep in mind, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. So we talk about seven years of tribulation. We're talking about 
the, the, the three and a half years of what some have called the Great Tribulation, where a lot of the really, really, really horrible things happen, three and a half years equals 42 months equals 1,260 days. And how do we get that? How many days in a year? 360 days in a year. That's why 1,260 equals out to three and a half years. If we were to say three and a half years, we'd add those extra five in there, depending on leap year, and then we'd be in trouble. But 1,260 will be three and a half years. Notice, though, notice the gap between verse 5 and verse 6. It says, uh, her child was caught up unto God, the end of verse 5, caught up unto God into his throne, verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Now notice, there's gaps in verse 5. She brought forth a man-child who was, to, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That has not happened yet. Her child was caught up unto God. How long? Well, 33, 33 and a half years is the gap between the time that she brought forth a man-child and when he was caught up to God in his throne. And then verse 6 says the woman fled into the wilderness. We're talking about the gap between 5 and 6 is 2,000 years of the church, of church history. The church, the woman has not fled into the wilderness to escape Satan. Now, let's talk about the people involved. The people, very quickly. The woman fled into the wilderness. There's the woman in verse 6, and then in verse 14, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle. Now, number three, the persecution inflicted. The persecution inflicted. So, anti-Semitism has risen and fallen over the years, but it's going to continue to rise, and it's going to continue to rise until it reaches its apex during the last 1260 days, or the last three and a half years of the tribulation, or the last how many months? 42 months. 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years. Now, why? Because verse 12, For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Who is the woman that brought forth the man-child? Israel's the woman. Now let's look at the... Let, we're going to go through a whole bunch of scriptures here, and you, you can stay with me and, and um, try to turn to them if you like. I included them at the bottom of your, of your handout. And, uh, but I'd like for you to turn to as many as you can because this is amazing stuff that we're going to see here in, in the book of, uh, in the Old Testament. All right. The prophecy interpreted. The prophecy interpreted. Let's take our Bibles and let's go to the Old Testament. Hosea. Back to Matthew and go left. Hosea. Right after the major prophets. You come to the first of the minor prophets, they're called, because their books are shorter. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. And the context of this passage here is, the, is Israel during the tribulation. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 14. Therefore, Hosea 2.14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Now, where is she up to this point? Well, she's in Jerusalem. She's in the cities. She's in the civilized portion of Israel. And he said, I'm going to allure her. I'm going to call her out of where she is, and I'm going to bring her into the wilderness. Verse 15, and I will give her 
her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her, what? Youth. And as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Now notice, in the last half of the tribulation, it's going to be like when Israel was young, when Israel was first born, and God's going to deal with the nation of Israel as he did when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.15 is a great verse. It says, that which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. It's a cyclical method that God uses to deal with his people and with the world in general. They say history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Now, people say the only thing people don't learn from history is that, that they don't learn from history, and, and there's truth in that. There's a cyclical pattern to human nature, and we all think that we are the kind of the, you know, the beginning and the ending, or at least the ending of human history. And, and we have our reasons, because as far as we know, we're, you know, the most important human. And uh, ever, don't you realize that everybody else feels the same way? And not just individuals, but civilizations, time frames feel that way. And you can see down through history where God has worked with certain nations and has had a, a, a pattern of, of a cyclical pattern. But here we're told specifically that God will work with Israel just like he did when he brought them out of Egypt. It's amazing. So if you think about this, You've got Exodus, you've got Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Those are the, the, the journals of God bringing Israel out of Egypt. They're, they're books of history, but if this is true, they're also books of prophecy. That there is a prophetic nature to Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Be careful. Be, be careful when, when you want to... Tell God what he can and cannot do with his people of Israel. Did you realize that there's coming a point in the future where they're going to adopt, implement the Old Testament law again? And scripture indicates that his people will continue to do that throughout, throughout eternity. They're going to continue. That which hath been is now, that which is to be hath already been. There's going to be some, at least a semblance of what he has done for them. Go to Deuteronomy 32. No, I'm going to read it for you. You stay, you stay there. I'm going to read this. Verse 10. He found him, Deuteronomy 32.10. You can go if you want. He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. He's talking about Israel here. His son. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings. The Lord said, I care, I bore Israel from Egypt into the promised land on eagles' wings. And did you catch that in Revelation 12 where he said, she's given wings like an eagle to go into the wilderness? Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, back, if you're in Hosea, go back to your left. Ezekiel 20, and look at verse 35. Because Hosea tells us that, he said, at that, It shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, which means husband, and thou shalt call me no more Bailey, Bailai, speaking of these pagan deities. 
Look what he says in 2033, Ezekiel 20, verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you and I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. So God told them if they went into idolatry, he would scatter them into every nation of the world. He would push them. They say there are Jewish coins uh, found in the state of Colorado. They were all over the place. They traveled everywhere. The population of Israel today is edging toward 10 million. But when they started in 1948, May 6, uh, May 14th, 1948, there was about 806,000 people. And so what that means is their nation has grown 12-fold over the last uh, decades. The years... Since 1990, uh, the years in between, rather, since 1948, they've seen 3.3 million new immigrants arrive in the country. Half of them, 43%, one and a half million people, have come since 1990. So you can look at their graph, and it's, it's beginning to go even further. It's beginning to exponentially increase as they go forward since 1990. Ezekiel 20, 35. He said in verse 34, I'll gather you out of the countries wherein you're scattered, verse 35, and I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you. How? Face to face. So there's going to be a, a personal interaction with the Messiah and his people out in the wilderness somewhere. He is going to talk to them face to face. Verse 36, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. The Bible tells us that the rock which followed them was Christ in 1 Corinthians. Jesus Christ was personally involved with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and he's going to be personally involved with the nation of Israel in the future. Look at Zechariah. Go forward to Zechariah. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Omadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Right before the end of the Old Testament, Zechariah, look at chapter 13. Zechariah 13. It says in verse number 8, shall come to pass, Zechariah 13, 8, and it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. Who is he talking about? Verse 9 tells us he's talking about them, his people. Verse 9, and I will bring the third part through the fire. So how many, how many people are going to be? 66% of Israel, Israel's population is going to be killed. You're left with 33% of the population. So how many people in this room right now? Maybe let's say 100. Let's just say, let's just say 100. So I can do the math. That means there's going to be 33 people left. 33 people left. We've got four sections here. If we were to say probably those two outer sections are the ones that are left, and everybody in the middle sections are gone. You're all dead. And then he's going to bring them through the fire. He says in verse 9, I'll bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. The believing remnant is going to be brought into the wilderness and they're going to be cared for by God in the same way that he cared for them in when they came out of Egypt. Go to Micah. 
Go, go backwards to Micah. Can you find Micah? Back to your left. Micah, look at verse 7, 14, chapter 7, 14. It says in verse 14, feed thy people with thy rod. So the context here is feeding. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thine heritage, which dwell solitarily in the wood, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. According to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto him marvelous things. Feed thy people according to the days of thy coming out of the land of Egypt. How did God feed the, the um, nation of Israel in the Old Testament? With manna, right? Now, the quail was there because they complained. God gave them quail. But, but his provision for them on a daily basis was, was manna. And, and let's, let's look at manna here in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. We're talking about this time when Israel leaves Jerusalem. The population goes out into the wilderness. Exodus chapter 16, second book in the Bible. Look at verse 14. Exodus 16, 14. It says, when the, dew that lay, uh, when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness, where are we? We're in the wilderness. On the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoar frost, H-O-A-R, what does that word mean? means white, right? So when God talks about the hoary head, he's talking about the white hair. And uh, he says, the, the hoar frost on the ground. What would that look like? Well, it would, it would, look, it would look like frost. It would look like snow. It's, it's covering the earth. You go out and you scrape it up like flour. And you use it to bake. Look at verse 21. And they gathered every morning, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. Now, I want to show you something somebody showed me. I thought it was cool. Uh, I think it fits. Go to, uh, go to Job 38. Job 38. How many chapters in the book of Job? There's 42. 42 chapters matching 42 months in, tribulation, in, in the, the tribulation. What's interesting about that is you have a man named Job who is the afflicted one, and he comes from the land of Uz, which is... In the land of Edom, according to Lamentation chapter 2, Uz is, is found, he's from the city of Uz, found in Edom. And we'll see in a moment here why that matters. But here, look at 38.22. 38.22, here's a possible connection here. Verse 22, hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war. Now, this is not something to build a church on, but interesting where you've got Job, who is a type of the persecuted, afflicted remnant in the tribulation. And here is God talking to him about the treasures of the snow that he has reserved until against, uh, prepared for the time of trouble. And that's what God, that's how God refers to the tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. Interesting thought, isn't it? Now, why does God have to feed them miraculously in the wilderness? Well, because Revelation tells us that, it, Revelation 13 it tells us that the Antichrist is going to cause all, both small and great, to receive a mark. 
And no one can buy or sell unless they have the mark. And so because of that, you can't waltz into the grocery store uh, and, and buy whatever you need. You're either going to get it on the black market or you're going to have to starve to death. And so God provides for them. Just like, just like Pharaoh drove Israel out of his land, God provided for them. Miraculously, God's going to provide for the nation of Israel. Uh, I do want to show you one other thing, that, and this is just for fun, but uh, if you look at Revelation, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 14, Matthew 14, um, this, this just popped into my head as I'm studying, Matthew 14, you see here uh, Herod in chapter 14 uh, arrests John the Baptist, and what does he do? He beheads him, uh, he's beheaded by this wicked ruler. That is the mode of, of uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Capital punishment in the tribulation time frame is beheading. And then what happens? When Jesus hears about it, look what he says down in verse number um, 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. The Bible tells us in Mark that he went privately aside. Okay, then... Notice verse number 13, when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So you have a type here, you have a type of Israel leaving the cities, going out into the desert place where Jesus is. And what, what happens? They come, the multitudes come seeking and he feeds them miraculously. He says in verse 19, he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, took the five loaves and two fishes, and he distributes that and they all ate 5,000 men. Now, what's interesting, too, is, is after this, they go, Jesus goes up and uh, he prays and he sends the multitude away. And then the ship is in the midst of the sea. And this is just a freebie. You can throw it in there if you want. You know what happens when Israel goes into the wilderness? What Satan does as a counterattack to them hiding in that wilderness fortress? He sends a flood. He's going to try to drown Israel, and folks have said possibly the, the, the you know stone city of Edom, of Petra there in Edom is where they will hide out, and it's very narrow, high columns. Indiana Jones had this in one of the movies where they go in there, and it's very narrow place, and you can understand how a flood could drown everyone because uh, it, because it's so narrow. Well, that's what he tries to do. Satan tries to send this flood to drown them out. And I found it interesting in Matthew 14 that after Jesus miraculously feeds them, uh, verse number 24, it says, The ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with the waves. The wind was contrary. And uh, verse number 30 talks about how they saw the wind boisterous. Peter's about to sink, and he reaches out his hand and says, Lord, save me. And the Lord saves him. So just something to... To, uh, to think about there. Now, let's go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. <clears throat> Matthew 24. It, 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 and I, I have to tell you, you, I've said this multiple, multiple times, but I want to encourage you to, to be careful uh, to, to hold what you think about Scripture only as tightly as, as God holds it. Because if you're not careful, you will end up having to argue for a point that you really don't believe. You ever been in that position? Like in your heart, you know that you don't believe it, but you have to because you've already made your stance. 
Um, let, me, let me show you something here. 24, and, and look at, it says here, um, Matthew 24, you see famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Um, this is after the rapture of the church. So keep in mind that, you know, well, there's more earthquakes today. We're here, that's, maybe there is, but it's not the earthquakes he's talking about in Matthew 24. This is after the rapture of the church. People are always looking for signs. The one, here's the sign that you need. Jesus Christ returns to take his bride. That's the sign. Because here's what happens. We think, well, it's getting closer to the end. It's getting closer to the end. We don't know when Christ is going to return. He comes as a thief in the night. The second advent, he comes as the sun shining in his glory. But, but we, are, we are here in the darkness, living in this dark world, and he's going to come as a thief in the night and take us out of here. So we don't need to have our ear to the ground, so to speak, listening for earthquakes and watching for all these, these things that happen in the earth. I mean, I'm like you. I, I see this, the, you know, the smoke out today, and I'm like, man, is it a sign of the times? No, it's a sign of a fire in Canada. Isn't it interesting how we can actually attach our heart to those physical things, and the words that I speak into their spirit and their life, and we're not interested in those words in the same way. Why? We always want something tangible. We want something we can get our hands on, and we can, and we can you know, trust in that. And the Lord says, I've given you these words. It is, a, it is a completely different approach to Scripture and to Christian life, trusting in the words of God. So I hope I didn't trample over any of your venerated observances here, but, but just keep that in mind. Now, look at verse number 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Now, here, here's, think about this. Let's say that they're reading through Matthew 24 during this time, and this guy's reading it, and he goes, oh, 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 he's talking about right now. He, he's talking about right now. Guys, we need to go. Let's go. When we had our fire back in January, it wasn't like, listen, guys, I have something important to tell you. Now, you may, you may want to sit down. This is going to be very important. No, it's like, everybody out, everybody out, everybody out. Uh, when you know that it's real, and that's what's happened in 15, when they see that abomination, when they see uh, the Antichrist sit down in the temple, First Thessalonians declaring himself that he is God, they're going to say, oh, th- th- let's go, everybody out. Everybody out of Jerusalem. Verse 16, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let them which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. I mean, literally, don't worry about your wedding pictures. Get out. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. I mean, you're going with what's on your back right now. And woe unto them that are with child and them that give suck in those days. Why? Babies cry. Babies don't care what the, what, how quiet they should be. It's going to be really difficult for them. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. You're going to be cold. Neither on the Sabbath day. You're going to try to honor the law. So you're not going to want to move and carry this stuff and do these burdens. Plus, everybody else is going to be locked down on the Sabbath day. And you're trying to flee where everybody's locked down. You can't blend in with the crowd. He says, verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And so we, we once again find this is the time frame that he's talking about when that dragon persecutes the woman, she flees into the wilderness. There's one other place, and for sake of time, we won't go there. We've got to finish tonight. But Deuteronomy 32, we referenced it already. In, in Deuteronomy 32, you're going to find not just what God did for Israel, but you're going to see a prophecy of what's going to happen again. You've got the wilderness, 
You've got, again, the eagle's wings. You have God miraculously providing for them, feeding them. And then you also have the, the uh, rock with a capital R. Capital R. So we're going we're gonna to finish out there tonight. But I, I want to give you a couple ideas here as we close. This whole wilderness thing is talking about the Jews. If you're here in the tribulation period... Uh, fleeing to the rock in the wilderness, it, that has nothing absolutely to do with you. That's for Israel. The truth is, if you're here and you're not a Jew, you will not have a place of refuge. There is no place. Now, some, you, you might try to become a Jew, but the Lord's talking about Israel. So it's important for you to think about this. If you want a place of refuge, you need to flee to Christ right now. He is our refuge. He is our comfort. Uh, He's prepared a place for you. Jesus Christ is the protection from the wrath of Almighty God. And uh, he's not just your buddy. You don't just add him to your life. He is the salvation of God. The rock is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to think about this tonight. God is at work. His plan is coming to pass just as surely as the words of Scripture say that they will. And he is, he is moving the parts around, the pieces around. He's moving in your life. And what does God want? You know what we think about? We think about the physical things. And we should. We, we think about making money, and we should. We think about our health, and we do need to be careful of our health. And we need to pray for those in poor health. But I want to remind you again to lift up your eyes higher than just this world and see how God is working. There are people around us who need to know about the refuge, Jesus Christ. Because these things are literal. These things are true. Much more true than the physical world in which we exist. God is going to work, and he's going to bring a point, he's going to bring history to a point where judgment is poured out. And his own people, only 33% of his own people, are going to survive. We've got to remember that there is a judgment coming. It is going to happen. We can't allow ourselves to just get into this mindset of, well, as long as I'm okay and as long as I'm... No, no. Remember, God has a plan and a timetable. You know what the the crux of the Christian life is? God, I want to do what you want, not what I want. And if you can get that in mind, God already has a plan. Hey, thank God we have an opportunity to be saved. What is God's plan now in 2021? What is it? It's not to prep. It's not to get prepared for the tribulation. I'll tell you what his plan is right now. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever. Your life, my life, should be centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of our desires, all of our aspirations for this world, they're only temporary at best. It could be that your desire to enjoy and to have fun in this world, all those things are good and great. Don't, remember, don't forget this. You have opportunity to enjoy this world later on in the millennium. But right now you have a job. I have a mission that I need to be focused on. Don't let the devil tell you this world is all there is. Don't let your schedule, don't let your busy life, don't let your health or your finances or anything drag you down to the point where you say this is all there is. 
You know what happens when people get in, tri- in, in uh, depression times and in times of, uh, of starvation and financial difficulties? They realize that this physical world is not all there is, and they start singing about heaven. They start talking about what's going to come, depression. You go through the depression era of our country, and you find so many songs about heaven that were written. Maybe God is allowing this difficult time in your life to disconnect you from this material world in your heart so that you can prepare for what's coming. We've got a mission, and let's focus on that. One of these days, God is going to make us all come to pass. And I can't say that I'm looking forward to it, but I am looking forward to him receiving the glory that's due unto his name. Well, that concludes our study tonight. Uh, Hope it's not too discouraging for you. But uh, never forget that the Lord is at work.